0: Hi, welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm David McGuffin. This is our last episode on board the Polar Prince in the Bay of Fundy in Atlantic Canada, part of the Students on Ice Ocean Conservation Expedition this past September. This is going to shore. This episode, we'll be spending time below the Fundy's waves and also looking to the skies with a fascinating and diverse group of scientists, researchers, students that make up this three-week voyage. What are you finding in there, Claire? Um,
1: There's some worms and things, it's hard to see. A lot of them are quite small, um, so we need to look at them under the microscope.
0: That's Claire Goodwin, research scientist at Huntsman Marine Science Centre in St. Andrews, New Brunswick. We're on a zodiac with her, gathering samples from the seabed in the Fundy's Minus Basin can you just first of all describe what it is you've just dropped into the ocean here um, well
1: this is a, a sediment grab and we're dropping it in um, it's quite a small sediment grab it's a nine by nine Ponar and um, we're trying to take uh, a piece of the se- seabed sediment and what we're going to do then is look at what animals are living inside that
0: great and looks like Laurie has done a, okay. a tug and a pull so can we'll give
1: it a jolt on the seabed so that I'm... gets the pin to release and the grab to close hopefully If there's rocks in the way, it won't close, so we'll see when we come up with we've managed to get any of the seabed substrate.
0: Great, and you're hoping to get some mud, and what are you hoping to find in that?
1: Um, We're trying to collect as many different species as possible, Uh, and the aim for that is we're creating a barcode database for Atlantic Canadian marine invertebrates. Um, So what we're going to do is uh, identify the species we find with the traditional taxonomy, and then we're going to genetically barcode um, those species, and that'll go into a barcode reference database. Um, so barcode's a, a small piece of DNA, and it, it differs uh, in different species, so you can use that as an identification tool.
0: And what, so what's the bigger, broader purpose of all this then? it
1: um, will enable um, scientists who are studying the environment um, to use uh, using different technologies to identify the species they're finding. At the moment, our databases aren't particularly complete, um, so we're trying to fill some of those gaps. Okay, so we're bringing the grab in now. And I'll lift up the size. We have got a little bit. I think probably what happened is it closed in a rock because it hit the seabed. So we haven't got a full grab, but there's a a little bit of gravel in there. Mm -hmm.
0: That's enough enough to work with?
1: Yeah, well, we're gonna do another one now. (laughs) Yeah,
0: good. Claire explains, the invertebrates they're studying are key indicators to the health of an environment, and they're also becoming increasingly important in many biomedical and pharmaceutical breakthroughs. What's exciting about this expedition for you?
1: Um, well, it's a, it's a great way to see loads of different places in the Bay of Fundy and on the Nova Scotia coast. It's not often normally when you do an expedition, you uh, tend to target one small area. But this one we're really able to do because we're on the Polar Prince, do a lot of traveling between different locations. And for us, that means hopefully we get a, a wider diversity of species we're able to collect because we're sampling loads more different habitats.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, are there unique aspects to the Bay of Fundy for you as a scientist that uh, compared to other parts of this area of Atlantic Canada?
1: Um, yeah I mean the Bay of Fundy has obviously got some of the highest tides in the world and um, so that creates some really interesting habitats you get um, areas where there's really really strong tidal flow and you get communities that are really unique to those uh, on the rock and um, so you might get forests of sponges and uh, stalked um, sea squirts um, down in where we are, in St Andrews, there's quite a lot of those around the passages and the rocky passages. And then up in this end of the Bay of Fundy, you've got uh, really large areas of mud flats um, which are very important for birds. Um, so there's just a, a real range of different habitats about in the bay.
0: And how much does your baseline work? How much does that involve like climate change and monitoring what's happening with the, the climate in the ocean?
1: Um, well all these um, data sets we'll be collecting information on species distribution are, are really important in monitoring those sort of changes and quite often just basic uh, baseline survey work gets overlooked and people don't see the scientific value of it but it's those databases people are going back to when they want to look at distribution shifts. Um, so as part of my work at Huntsman I curate the Atlantic Reference Centre Museum And the collections there, uh, we contribute all our collections data to OBIS, the Ocean Biogeographic Information Service. Um, So it's all publicly accessible to people wanting to look at changes in uh, species. And also all the specimens are in there. So the specimens we're collecting during this project on the polar prints will go back in the museum. So if other scientists want to use them for study, uh, they'll be able to access those collections as well.
0: Amazing. I mean, what changes have you noticed due to climate?
1: Um, mainly um, species shifts at, a, at sort of a, a personal level. We're seeing some species that are more southern um, that do seem to be moving into the Bay of Fundy. And then there's others that seem to have disappeared. There's a really beautiful basket star, uh, which we get round its, uh, its northern species. You get it up in the Arctic. A starfish it, it's a starfish but it's got these twiddly wavy arms, uh, it, it really does look like a basket when it's got its arms up. Yeah. Um, and that was really used to be quite common in the Western Isles which is near where we work in St Andrews and it seems to have completely disappeared yeah. uh, now. Uh, so that's one of the species we seem to have lost.
0: The Huntsman team believes the cause is climate change, warming waters allowing harmful bacteria to flourish with impacts up and down the food chain. So i just
1: jumping through there. Okay, so we're going to push it down. <laughs> and we're trying to get these two holes lined up.
0: Helping Claire with the sediment scrub is Valerie Campbell. A
1: bucket of muddy water would be
2: so exciting. <laughs>
0: From Peguis First Nation in Manitoba, she's studying indigenous marine conservation at nearby Acadia University.
3: I'd love to hear your, your version of creation story. Oh, right now? Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: On the Fundy Shores, with a group of students and researchers, Valerie shares an ancient story of the Mi'kmaq god Glooscap and the origins of the record high tides of the Minas Basin.
2: There was a day that Glooskap wanted to take a bath in, in the Bay of Fundy, and, and Glooskap was a giant. Um, but there, there was, so there was a day he wanted to take a bath. and uh, originally uh, beavers were, were giant. They were huge. so he got this giant beaver to, to, build, uh, to build a dam. And a whale came along and he was like, "What are you doing here?" Like I, I, me and my family and my friends, we, we move through here. Um, we, li- we live here. So Glooskap was like, "But I'm trying to take a bath." And eventually, the whale took its tail, and it smacked the water and broke the dam, and all the water rushed in, uh, and that's how how the tide, the tides were created.
0: For Valerie Campbell, indigenous oral history is their telling of the actual seismic and geological shifts that shaped this landscape.
2: I, I talk with a lot of academics that really can't wrap their heads around, um, in. Indigenous people and in our stories being true. Um, they're referred to as myths or le- legends. But I think it's really funny because we've been here pre-ice age and there's no way, when you really think about it, there's no way that we lived here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and learned nothing. Science is tracking nature's patterns and that, that's what we've been doing. Um, the way we share our science, it's not through academic st- journals and articles. It's through storytelling. Um, It's how we preserve our science and our history, um, cultural practices, things like that. So I like putting indigenous science parallel to academic science. I don't have a history in biology or chemistry, Mm -hmm. anything in that realm, but I do consider myself an indigenous scientist.
0: One of the great things about being on this expedition is seeing how quickly friendships build. Strangers thrown together, pitching in to help out each other's research, bonding like, over all aspects I love, right? of the work. I saw your Everyone
2: always asks why do you get your nails done if you do things with fish because then when you take pictures with fish, your nails look
4: nice. No, and they got, let me get, Thank you. But no, no, they're functional, fully functional because oh, yeah. we work with gill nets a lot and you can, I can't get a fish out as good without these. Yeah. Really?
0: <laughs> Valerie makes a connection with Erica Porter. Erica is a commercial fisher in her late 20s from the shores of the Minas Basin here in Nova Scotia. Along with her father, Darren Porter, they make up the Marine Institute of Natural and Academic Science or MINAS, monitoring the fish and marine stocks in the basin. They work with local and indigenous communities in an effort to keep these waters healthy. This
5: is the Minas Basin. This is Erica's backyard where the Biggest tides in the world, very strong currents.
0: Expedition leader Jeff Green introduces we'll Erica to the regular gathering that takes place each night in the Polar the Prince's old helicopter hangar.
4: There's such high currents here that certain industries like tidal power and stuff like that make it really um, they just want to go there because there's so much power and Later, so
0: much as we sail into the Minas Basin, on deck Erica talks about her father's decision to shift from full-time commercial fishing to marine life monitoring. It began in the last decade as energy companies began harnessing the tidal power of the basin. The first tidal turbine had devastating effects. There was a big turbine drop, like basically right below it. Yeah, so it's, it's still,
4: it's it's still, still in there. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it was... It could have been done with a little bit more um, collaboration. Yeah. Um,
0: There was zero.
4: So there was, I would say, minimal. Yeah, yeah. and I I think that kind of really got them going because it's you can only kill the fish once, right? right? And so once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. And especially in a spot that is so. Oh, it's it's, it's their go. it's their passage like it's it's yeah. where the the fish go to get into the minus basin to yeah. get into the freshwater to spawn yeah. and they already have so many barriers like pun intended yeah. to get past but they have to first get past yeah. a turbine yeah. and yeah. then they have to get past the certain barriers that right. in in West Hans at least that we have quite a few yeah,
0: exactly. I mean what is the impact of that turbine been from your perspective
4: well, we actually had a, our weir at that time in Bramber, and we could literally see when it was spinning, we would get fish in our weir as quite literally chopped up. Um, whether or not you say that's where it comes from is up to you, um, but I think it, you, know, you can put two and two together and say that we uh, had some chopped up fish. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Since then, presented with the findings of their marine data, Erica says energy companies have been much better at consulting local communities and using surface turbines, which cause much less harm.
3: Wasn't like this on a bounty, was it?
0: The ship's bridge is always a great place to find activity. On the port side of the bridge, the Canadian Wildlife Service has set up shop doing a seabird survey. There's two
2: gannets over there in the water, and then past that, there's three little birds and I can't tell what they are from
5: this far. With, with like the
1: gannets? At like, I don't
0: know, 7-8 o'clock? Led by veteran birder Rick Ludkin and two grad students, Jesse Wilson and Catherine Hanneman, they constantly scan the horizon with their binoculars. Yeah, so there we go, we just spotted something. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. <laughs> what do we see out there? That was really... There's a pair of gannets. Mm-hmm. Are they fairly common? or with... They're fairly common. They, they,
5: uh, there's a lot of concern right now because there's been such a die-off, especially around Newfoundland due to avian influenza. So it's nice that we're seeing good numbers right now uh, here in the bay. Um, the other birds-
0: Rick Ludkin lives several months of the year on Grand Manan, a Bay of Fundy hotspot for birds from all over.
5: A um, razorbill- A couple of years ago in late August, I found um, a lark sparrow and a lark bunting feeding together uh, both of those are are prairie birds and wow. you wonder what the heck are they doing there and you think about their journey you get two western birds feeding within less than a meter of each other did they travel together i mean what what is their story bringing them there and, but that's i think they would have been affected by the f- same weather system whether it was a storm or whether it's just Two birds with anomalous DNA found each other and decided to keep going, I really don't know. If there's a storm, like for example with this, uh, Hurricane Fiona moving up the coast, it could shift a lot of birds into the area that uh, were caught
0: over the water and just blown blown up here. And it's a good catch-all place for them. So I mean, people are worried about Hurricane Fiona, but for a birder, it's actually, it actually stirs the pot a little bit, doesn't it? it, makes <laughs> <laughs> it. Yeah, it really does stir the pot. Uh, I mean, there are
5: stories of what they call fallouts of birds that have been caught up by a hurricane. You know, some Or sometimes they're called a wreck, uh, especially if birds are, seabirds are blown inland and uh, get stranded on the land itself and can't take off again. Um, but yeah, a hurricane can can bring in a lot of... So, birdies, I mean, we've you know, talked anomalies. a bit about hurricanes
0: coming in, we've talked a bit about avian influenza, but I'm just wondering climate change and what are the impacts you're seeing of that in this area? Birds are really representative of a food chain.
5: They're at the top of a food chain, and if you see changes in their numbers or or in the species makeup, that speaks to, to the food chain. And worldwide, and certainly in uh, Canada, there's been a... A uh, steady marked decline in bird numbers. So that should be telling us something. And when you begin matching that with, say, a loss of plankton, for example, in, in the Bay of Fundy, or um, warming of the bottom temperatures in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the shift of um, Atlantic right whales from Grand because of a loss of zooplankton and going into the, the Gulf of St. Lawrence, moving farther north. Uh, the that's got to begin to concern us, because if it's affecting birds and, and wildlife, then um, it's going to be affecting us. There's a great concern about grassland birds; their numbers have plummeted. A great concern about uh, uh, fly-catching birds, uh, aerial insectivores are called. Um, their numbers have plummeted as well. I mean, it's not just seabirds; it's birds uh, families generally one of the few families that seems to be doing well is ducks so (laughs) you know um. ducks is that uh,
0: because of a concentrated effort on wetlands and stuff that we've seen in the last 30 40 years
5: yeah i think so i think you know uh, there's different government initiatives but also um, uh, partnering with ducks unlimited has been tremendously helpful and there's a good number of landowners that set aside parts of their uh, their the lands that they they own uh, and pair with Ducks Unlimited to, to create uh, wetlands and uh, it's shown that it's had a real positive effect so there there are small things that people can do uh, that will improve um, the overall ecology I mean t- instead of having a beautifully manicured lawn if you c- took some of that lawn and just created you know, uh, butterfly gardens or pollinator gardens, you know, to use a, a few square meters, and but you had pollinator gardens throughout a neighborhood, they would add up to, a, you know, a larger area. I mean, there's a lot of little things that you can do to, to help that.
0: Yeah. And uh, just in the bigger picture, I mean, what does give you hope if you look at, at the bird world around you?
5: We're very concerned with governments and changes on a major scale. But in the long run, I think that really effective change is the sum result of small things that a large number of people do. And I'm hopeful that, I mean, there's more talk about pollinator gardens. There's more awareness that um, things are coming to a, to a crux. And, it, and more people seem to be interested in making a difference. So what, what's hopeful to me is that we can find ways for people to make those small changes and cumulatively those changes will, make a, will have a positive benefit.
0: Also on the bridge, Claire Goodwin is meeting with expedition leader Jeff Green, plotting out a dive site for more baseline studies of horse muscle beds at Briar Island. Claire,
5: for you and Millie, we should be able to get a dive site there there's one that. up
1: there that's horse muscle, so which would be really nice in terms of biodiversity but if it doesn't work with what you doing
0: with Claire it, is Millie mannery
5: you guys just met each other yeah
1: yeah
5: <laughs> awesome
0: her new dive partner a marine biologist uh, from New Zealand
1: one on Peter Island, the outside rocky ball that's like kelp um, okay. and then okay we're gonna do a body check anyway so
0: Claire and Millie are preparing to dive from their zodiac into the strong fundy currents off Briar Island. Claire explains what they're after.
1: So we are going to a site I surveyed this area in 2017 and we're going to a site that's got a horse mussel bed. Um, So horse mussels are really big mussels. They form these really dense beds on the seabed and they're really important for other species. A lot of um, juvenile species would use them as a nursery area. Um, You get a lot of things that grow on the horse muscles and in between the horse muscles. What kind of things
0: do we get?
1: Brittle stars, you get sponges, you get bryozoans, you get little crabs, um, you might get little juvenile fish. um, So there'd be all sorts of things um, within the horse muscle area. A lot of aquatic life around. Yeah, really diverse.
0: Millie is a Rolex dive scholar, which is a very cool sounding year long program that has her diving all around the world.
1: I've been to um, the California coast, I've been to Catalina Island and been involved with some kelp research projects there, some hyperbaric chamber operator training. I've been to the Cayman Islands for some free diving training, um, up to the Canadian high Arctic for some different research projects up there.
0: Even with all that experience, the strong fundy currents are daunting.
1: I'm quite nervous. Let me go (laughs) first. But off
0: they go. Emerging 20 minutes later. How was it,
1: Millie? (laughs) It was so awesome. (laughs) Oh, it's so cool down there. It's a lovely sight. There are lots of horse mussels. big clumps of this surprise zone called Fluster I think it was with their it's like fan-shaped Briar's Own, big white clumps oh uh, lobsters had you seen lobsters before Millie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were yeah. very friendly very friendly lobsters yeah. and big winter flounder that just swimming around us the whole time wow. uh, and really clear I mean the base was really good yeah, wasn't beautiful. it at least 10 meters um so it was um yeah a lovely sight unfortunately we didn't get as much slack water as we hoped and we had to come up. We had to come up at 20 minutes just because of the current. It's too, it was too strong. Too strong to stay on the bottom. Um, so we were sort of trying to grab things, and it was just yeah, too strong to stay down there.
0: Yeah. Also with us in the Zodiac is Loïc Jacquemont, a postdoc student from Naval University. With a colony of harbor seals watching us from a kelp-covered shoal, Loïc takes samples of water from the bay. He's collecting environmental DNA, or eDNA, tracking species by finding traces of their DNA in the water. Important baseline work, similar to what the huntsman team is doing. Another day at the office.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the office will be to work with uh, extract DNA at the lab, uh, amplify it, may I sequence it. So it takes quite a, long, a lot of time. And after that come all the bioinformatics analy- analysis so to uh, clean all these sequences, uh, compare it to this database, and match it to the species. So it, yeah, actually most of my time is on a computer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this is the fun part, I think. This right? is the fun part, exactly. And sometimes you, well, I have to enjoy this uh, field work because it's, it's not often.
0: I mean, you work with Student on Ice as well, that's right?
3: Yeah, I'm also working uh, for Student on Ice on a project which is called uh, Blue Future Pathway. Our role for this is to uh, engage some uh, youth into the sustainable blue economy. We put them in a relationship with uh, actors in the ocean, so in the aquaculture, environment, uh, management of uh, the ocean. We are trying to help them and guide them to find their path through this ocean works. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what's that experience like for you?
3: It's quite good. It's very different from what I'm using I'm used to do. It allowed me to I mean share my experience I had and yeah I feel like this educational part is very important because future generations will be people which will work in this ocean and it's important to show them how to make it in a sustainable uh, way?
0: And there's, you know, obviously a lot of concerns about the ocean. There's problems. There's a climate change. There's all. I mean, what when you're in all your work with the ocean, what what gives you hope for the future?
3: I would say to see like this kind of expedition, which bring together uh, a lot of diverse actors, and you can see how many people are working on the same subject. So. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people which are, which are pushing for working in a better ocean. It gives me energy to continue to do what, I, what I'm doing. And it's also good to see that what I'm doing with my science is closely linked to uh, this management uh, they operate in the ocean. So, I'm not pessimist for future.
0: Yeah.
3: Back on the bridge, we're sailing
0: on to my end point of this journey at Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Rick Ludkin is in his usual perch, binoculars scanning the horizon. The whole atmosphere of the trip, of um, exposing people,
5: uh, especially young people, to the wildlife that's all around them, I think is really special and really important in this day and age where people are concerned with uh, a phenomenon called nature deficit disorder, NDD, where there's a disconnect between people and the natural world around them. The more we can teach people about their environment, uh, the better off, uh, hopefully the better off things will be. And that's what this trip seems to be aimed at
0: doing. That's it for this voyage around the Bay of Fundy. It's a remarkable and beautiful place and I'd encourage you all to visit. I want to give a big thanks to Students on Ice for inviting me along on this trip, and to all the staff, researchers, scientists, and students who took part. For more on the work of Students on Ice, visit their website, soifoundation.org. Next up, I'm heading to Cambridge Bay in Nunavut to spend time with the community there and visit the Canadian High Arctic Research Station. I'm packing the full-body Stanfields for this one. Stay tuned. As ever, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us where you listen. It helps people to find us. And until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right
3: now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just been a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling you about... We Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each man by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that
5: history is very strong and we flew low over every inch of the country that it could be we we're hoping that he would fly at us. Well I guess 160 dives or so.
0: There are shrimp and fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well i first for Canada.